Hi, I'm Chris Till and this is the Digital Sociology Podcast. So uh, thanks for coming back and downloading this podcast or uh, hello to anyone who's new to it. Um, if you are uh, new and you want to go and look at the archive and to uh, subscribe, you can search for Digital Sociology Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and I think most uh, podcasting apps. Um, today I'm talking to Holly Powell-Jones about some really uh, good research she's doing with young people and their perceptions of risk um, around social and criminality around social media and, um, and in particular I think the way that she um, deals with ethics and actually sees her research as part of an educative process as well is really interesting. I've uh, had some good feedback about the podcast so far, but if you want to get in touch, uh, that would be great. You can do so on my blog, This Is Not A Sociology blog, and through Twitter. Uh, I'm there on at Chris H. Till. So here's my interview with Holly. Hi again. So um, now I'm uh, at City University London and I'm talking to Holly Powell Jones, who's a PhD researcher. Here and she's doing some uh, really, really fascinating work uh, research on young people and their perceptions of uh, crime and um, and the law and risk um, in online behaviour. So, hi, Holly. Hi. I, uh, thanks for talking to me. Um, I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, hearing some more about your research. Um, but um, I mean, we met uh, a few a couple of months ago and had a little chat, and I thought you'd be really good. Um, really good uh, um, person to talk to for this podcast. So um, you're doing some work um, where you're uh, doing um, sort of focus groups and some interviews and things with young people. Uh, what kind of age groups is it? That's right, yeah. So I'm working with secondary school age students, right. so years 7 to 13. So that's age sort of 11 up to 18 years old. So yeah. quite a spread. And so you're um, trying to get some of their, their opinions on online behaviour and the, maybe the borders between criminality or acceptability and things like that? Absolutely. So um, I think there's there's been a huge amount of research about like kind of online behaviours um, and what we should and shouldn't be worried about, what kind of policies we ought to have, all those kinds of things. Um, but there's not, I don't think, been enough direct qualitative research with the next generation who are using social media in quite a different way um, to a lot of the older generation who are making decisions about these kinds of things. So, um, I, I mean, there are some really, really great researchers, people like Sonia Livingston and Dana Boyd and various others who, who are looking sort of at cyberbullying. But I've tried to extend that further by actually talking about the legal and criminal aspect of social media because I think a lot of people who use it may not even realize that there are laws around what you can and can't do and say online yeah i mean i think there's um among some people there's still this this perception that um the online world is this kind of wild west situation which it, it perhaps was in the very early days mm-hmm. but that's i mean long gone really isn't it yeah well i think what has happened is we've kind of taken at least in sort of england and wales and the uk media law we've taken a lot of the the rules and laws that apply to uh, media broadcasting publishing and communications mm-hmm. and then sort of almost try to just plonk it onto the internet and social media mm-hmm. so whether that's things like contempt of court about biased reporting of police t- 
trials and things like that for, for journalists or whether that's, you know, malicious communications and things that may, you know, all those kinds of things that would have existed before the internet um, are now sort of then being trying to apply. But I think at the same time, there is... Um, there is an ongoing discussion about whether we need to do more to regulate the internet, whether we need new laws, whether we need changes or updates to those laws. So that is an ongoing conversation in society. Uh, and I guess my point is I want to chip in and say, well, here are some of the perspectives and thoughts of young people on this. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, they're an extremely important group. Like you said, I mean, we can suggest they're perhaps a, a particularly vulnerable group, but also they're the ones... Um, perhaps living their lives most online. Would you say that's definitely, true? Yeah, definitely. I think the amount of media, um, not only that young people um, are consuming, but are actually producing yeah. as well, is massive. Um, and I think, you know, like I say, researchers before me have really highlighted that there isn't necessarily this online-offline divide that I think older generations might might have between kind of uh, their social lives. I think for, for a lot of young people their digital social lives are integrated and fundamental to their actual social lives. There isn't this separation. And um, I think, uh, as Dana Boyd put it, you know, young people have to make an active effort to opt out yes. of this kind of communication um, rather than make a conscious choice to opt into it. So, yeah, definitely. So uh, what kinds of impacts do you think that that can have, that, that, that kind of that generational uh, di- uh, difference uh, there? Well, there's, there's been a few studies that show that there is uh, not just a difference in kind of the use, so like how many hours they're spending, mm. who they're talking to, and what platforms they're using. There is a big difference in attitude difference as well. Mm. So the kinds of things that older generations might think are appropriate or inappropriate to post online, uh, younger generations uh, will maybe have different views mm. uh, about that. And I think what we have seen is a lot of young people use social media in uh, a, a very open and fluid way and might have the kinds of conversations uh, that, that we're having now or that you would have in the pub or in your home in your bedroom so quite a, a level of intimacy I think uh, but with these platforms where their their data might be public or their data might be collected and stored and searchable and permanent uh, online so that is uh, quite an interesting thing maybe for us to bear in mind yeah absolutely so um from the the work that you've done um you've conducted quite a bit of research so far um yeah i've spoken to um about 190 wow. just under 190 uh young people uh so my research methods are a bit of a hodgepodge um, because they're based on a model from my professional life so before i did this research i was an educator and i, I before that a journalist but i would go into schools and i essentially run workshops where i give groups of young people examples of posts that could be legally, ethically, socially Mm. problematic. And I say to them, how risky do you think this is Mm. and why? Um, And those are the kind of similar methods that I use for my research. So uh, I run these workshops in schools and I essentially take verbatim quotations, handwritten notes in the session of what these young people Mm. are saying in response to those uh, examples. So they're they're getting uh, some kind of training or reflection or... Yeah, teaching that. that. I think that's really cool. That's really important because you're not just going in and extracting data from them. Definitely. So that was a fundamental part, I think, of my my ethics form and, and how mm. I wanted to do this. Was I actually don't think it's it's a good idea to go in and, and give young people problematic tweets and then not explain to them and educate yeah, course, them yeah. on, on what those problems are. So the final part of the workshop is essentially where I go through and I will say, you know, well, this example here, that's uh, an example of inciting racial hatred, which is mm. a criminal offence. 
offence and you can get, you know, up to seven years in prison for this kind of material. Um, this here is a, an example of uh, revenge porn or possibly indecent images of an mm. under 18. That's a very serious criminal offence. Um, and I think that education aspect is really, really important. And we do get quite a lot of disclosures as well, I think, mm. through these workshops um, where young people will actually say, oh, actually, this has happened to me and mm. I didn't realise that that was a crime. Uh, and so we're then able to sort of signpost young people to the help that they need and the support they need. So it's it's uh, it's about educating young people in order to hopefully reduce perpetration of offences, but also to support and empower victims mm. to uh, get help with something that might be more serious than they thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, what what have some of the core issues that have been coming up for you in terms of? So you've obviously got that legal and professional background on this what are some of the more surprising or, or um, insights that you, you've uh, you've found from talking to those young people well I think um, possibly not surprising but definitely shocking <laughs> yeah. is um, attitudes towards indecent images right. um, of young people you know kind of sexting as it's mm. referred to or revenge porn as it's referred to mm. um, and I think although uh, I shouldn't. I say it's not surprising because we see um, particularly victim blaming of women and girls mm. in all kinds of sexual related offences and other crimes, you know, as criminologists, feminist criminologists have highlighted. Um, but for me, uh, the, the example that caused the most debate and discussion and the least consensus was an example that was meant to sort of suggest a revenge porn incident. And there was a whole range of different views amongst young people as to whether they were justifying and defending that, victim blaming or condemning it, um, and you know supporting the victim and saying this is wrong. So um, I think that's an area that uh, hopefully I can then highlight needs a lot more work mm. in terms of education in schools on these issues. Um. What about the what about the legal aspect? Is in your opinion is is uh, is the law in the right kind of place on that? I think we're getting there. I mean, um, so we we had uh, a bill in 2015 which essentially made revenge porn, as it's known, uh, a criminal offence in its own right. So previously, you could have used things like harassment and things like that to charge someone, but um, now it is uh, it is a criminal offence with a two year maximum sentence for. Uh, distributing indecent images or video of someone without their consent and with the intention of causing distress. However, feminist legal scholars have pointed out that there, there is more work, I think, that needs to be done. So uh, there's problems with, for example, websites that host this kind of material uh, being quite difficult to prosecute and things like that as well. And because they're not necessarily in your jurisdiction? Uh, not even that, but actually the, the, the idea that you, as a, uh, as a platform online, uh, are not legally responsible for user-generated sure. content. Mm. So there are issues like that as well, which... Um, People like Claire McGlynn is a big uh, scholar who's working on this kind of thing and various other people. So um, I think there is more that needs to be done from the legal end. Um, I think I'm sort of more towards the kind of uh, social solutions, education mm. kind of end of that spectrum. Uh, and I, But there are people working in the legal aspect of it and policy. Um, but equally, you know, there are people saying, can we find technological solutions to this mm. uh, as well? So I think it's one of those things where it's going to require a lot of joined up thinking between yeah. different actors in society to try and address these issues. Yeah, but I, and I mean, I, I would think I would tend to agree with you that those kind of legal or, or technical kind of fixes are perhaps potentially useful and good, but ideally we want to get to a, a place where they're 
actually not really used or, or, or used a lot less. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm a criminologist, so yeah. I'm, I'm interested in behaviour and mm. I'm interested in, in kind of deviance and, and things like that. And uh, so f- for me, I think uh, a lot of the things that I talk about with young people, whether it's hate speech, whether it's abuse, whether it's threats, uh, whether it's kind of racism or homophobia or misogyny, I see these as broader, bigger social problems that have been around for a long time and are not necessarily because of the internet, but are perhaps being amplified or exacerbated by new technology. Mm. So um, as a yeah, as a criminologist, as an educator, I am a big fan of actually uh, kind of doing that sort of work in schools where we explain to young people, this is the problem with this or these are the mm. issues with that. So. There are there significant differences between kind of groups you've spoken to around those opinions of, of what is acceptable or, or what is risky as well? Yeah, so um, this is kind of a key part of my uh, sort of theorising, if mm. you like. I'm looking very much at the sociology of risk and the social reaction to deviance mm. and what and who is defined as risky. Um, and yeah, there is there is a lot of difference. Um, I think I uh, my samples are not really big enough to kind of make broad statements however um there are some slight differences in age which were quite interesting so a lot of the literature around risk taking and risky behaviors uh kind of suggests that we become more risk averse as we get older Um, But I would say uh, my data actually suggests the opposite which is younger students were more likely to say oh no don't put that up that's bad that's risky that's criminal Mm. Uh, and actually the the older students particularly those in sixth form were more likely to say well that's all right you're not going to get in any trouble for that or police aren't going to do anything or oh that's just someone expressing their opinion so I'm using uh, quite an old criminological theory from Sykes and Matza which is techniques of neutralization so I'm looking at how um, techniques like denial of responsibility, appealing to higher loyalties, um, denial of injury, denial of the victim are used, um, particularly as students get older, to maybe justify behaviours that when they were younger they would have just condemned. Mm. So I think we learn these arguments and neutralizations um, as we get older. Um, and that to me is interesting as well from an educational perspective. Yeah. Um, I'm also interested in uh, something I've just anecdotally um, observed and not really backed up by kind of evidence is that um, perhaps younger people in particular tend to use different platforms in very different ways. Um, and I think that, and so, definitely, do they perhaps have kind of the sort of rules of engagement of the different platforms? Well, that's a really interesting point as well. So um, I think uh, there's a perception that young people and teenagers, especially, are just are just risky. They just mm. don't think about things. They do what they want, um, and that's absolute rubbish. I think existing work on uh, teenagers' digital life shows that they are hyper risk managers. Mm. They actually are really good at strategically you know, using different platforms to talk to different people, having different groups and different conversations going on, changing their privacy Mm. settings so certain people can and can't see Mm. what they're posting. They might have even several different profiles uh, for different people. So they are learning those risk management techniques. Um, uh, And, but I think in terms of, in terms of the law, 
um, those same laws apply in mm. terms of communication and publishing, regardless of what platform you're using. So the basic legal knowledge and criminal knowledge needs to be there, yeah. regardless of what platforms you're using. But the assumption that um, young people are kind of using social media uh, thoughtlessly and carelessly and um, without an awareness of risk is just not true. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And um, is that kind of tied in with their... Um, so I imagine that that risk for them is perhaps uh, related to the notions of risk of just uh, risk of embarrassment or of, mm. of, of just what they deem to be socially appropriate in on uh, Twitter as opposed to Instagram or Facebook. Or oh, completely. Yeah. And I think that's where it goes back to the difference in attitude of different generations as mm. well, because, um, uh, you know, adults might be horrified by something that's quite normal and acceptable for young people to do and say online um, and, and vice versa, actually, as well. So um, I think for a lot of teenagers, um, the reality is that um, the kind of social repercussions could be uh, could be worse for them. Uh, in terms of intended consequences or unintended consequences mm. than actually legal intervention or police intervention. I think the uh, the kind of the fear of what we might call social death of, of, of embarrassment or humiliation online is, is um, probably more of a concern for young people than getting in trouble with their school or their teachers or the police. Mm. Or, um, and so, again, I think they're trying to look at those issues from a, an informed kind of youth perspective is really, really important because, um, you know, at the, at, the, at the tragic extreme end of the scale, there have been incidences of young people even taking their own lives because of a social media kind of humiliation or being a victim of abuse or whatever it is. And so um, we do need to take young people's social media um, seriously and not just write it off as, oh, well, you know, the problem is Facebook, just get off mm. Facebook. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, is there, uh, Have you found... Um, anything around how young people are kind of policing one another uh, and perhaps policing other people as well. I spoke to um, Sean Lloyd, who's done some work around Facebook, who's at Liverpool John Moores University recently, and um, she just talked about how um, people kind of um, sort of almost policing older generations and, and things like defriending their dad from Facebook because he says embarrassing things and this kind of thing. So yeah. uh, uh, is there an awareness of those of saying... Of um, defining the boundaries of what's kind of acceptable. I think that aspect is really, really important. And mm. if you look at all the existing research on bullying and cyberbullying mm. and, and various other behaviours, what generally tends to work best is um, is kind of bottom up rules. So mm. the kind of rules that young people have created themselves um, and they've agreed to follow, rather than a top down, we're telling you you can and can't do this. Mm. Um, and also that kind of that peer to peer monitoring support regulation whatever you want to call it actually um you know i don't i don't think many young people now would necessarily go straight to a teacher or a parent or a police officer if they had an issue online they'd start with their friends uh, and we know that so i do think that peer-to-peer -peer stuff is very very important and um what i hope from my workshops is that young people will actually in a way be become educators themselves mm. that they can take what they've learned in the session mm. and go away and say to their friend look mate you shouldn't be posting that mm. or their dad you know yeah, look, well, mate, yeah, you shouldn't exactly. be posting yeah, yeah. that you know as well um, and that they can go and kind of um, spread that knowledge uh, further themselves mm. uh, in a quite an empowered way so that's that's the plan yeah I mean do you um, do you feel um, in a broad sense that um, social media does uh, of course it's 
shouldn't think in dichotomies or anything like this, but it does tend towards uh, an empowerment, um, or is it? That is a that is a really yeah that's a really tricky question. I think uh, I'm going to defer to uh, Sonia Livingston here and her decades of work with young people in media and and her main finding is that uh, the more that children use the internet and social media. Um, yes, they're exposed to more risk, but they mm. also are exposed to more opportunities. Mm. And that risk and opportunity are intrinsically connected, actually. Um, and, you know, if we if we try to ban young people, you know, I do a lot of work with parents as well, and they're rightly, you know, worried for their children's safety and stuff. But banning young people from technology mm. is really not the solution because you're actually going to disadvantage them. We are heading for a digital age and a digital future, kind of whether we like it or, or not. And um, I think it's about helping young people to be digitally and socially kind of and emotionally literate mm. um, so that they are prepared for that future. Um, so, yeah, I don't think social media is good or bad. Equally, I don't think it's neutral, you know. No, I don't yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. just a, a bland tool. I know that there are many, many ways that technology can and does influence how we behave as well. Um, but, yeah, I think really just educating young people to be able to use social media and not to be used by it. Absolutely. I think that's that's an extremely important point. And it's that um, that kind of critical ability, um, which is important, in, as you said, in engagement with any kind of media or, or, or and education and everything else, being able to, um, to question those things, which is... Um, and there's a lot of potential there. And I'm just thinking, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking sort of, um, a few weeks after the UK general election, which we saw actually yeah. that social media played a huge role, particularly... Um, amongst young people, in it seems to have in terms of mobilising them um, to um, to vote uh, and spreading messages counter to many of the mainstream um, uh, messages getting from uh, traditional kind of, uh, newspapers and and, uh, and TV outlets and this kind of thing. And it, mm. seem, it seems in that context, it was very very important and it, it achieved one of those. Despite the dangers uh, or the risks that many, particularly older people, see, it, it, it's helped to achieve one of those almost holy grails of kind of <laughs> yeah. contemporary policies, which is getting young people yeah. to be in, involved and engaged. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think um, uh, there is still this kind of pervasive view that Twitter doesn't really matter and that mm. social media is not... I mean, it's correct to say that social media doesn't represent society. We know that there are existing digital divides and, and all those kinds of things. So it doesn't represent society. But I don't think it can be written off and ignored either because... Mm. You know, um, I mean, there was, oh, I think there was an MP who got got in trouble recently for saying, um, you know, this is what I don't like about Twitter. It gives a voice to people who don't deserve it. And I thought, well, that's exactly yeah. the opposite, isn't it? Like, the, the point mm. is that, it, you know, it's not just journalists who can sit down and hold mm. you to account and question you. Um, actually, Twitter is a way that other people that, you know, more broadly can mm. ask those questions and challenge people yeah. and raise a voice. And, and so, um, yeah, at, at its best, it, it, can, uh, it can do those kinds of things. And, you know, the idea that, yeah, Twitter's just, just full of idiots and should be ignored, I think is, uh, you know, ignore the, ignore the Twitter art at your yeah. peril. Um, but equally, I don't think that... It, it can represent and does represent everyone and we do need to make sure that we continue with offline engagement with each other mm. as well. I mean, I've seen many, many projects around young people in the internet and social media where everything is is online and that's 
great in terms of potentially being accessible to more and more people and having a greater reach. But I would never stop doing the work that I do in schools because I think that face-to-face, group discussion, interaction, listening to people is really important. And fundamentally as well, sometimes you need to be off the record and have those conversations in the safety of a classroom. I mean, listen, we used to have this almost a bit of a safety um, kind of cover for when young people were transitioning from childhood to adulthood, they could make mistakes. Mm. They could say and do stupid things and it was going to be in the past. It wasn't going to be permanently and publicly out there for everyone. My concern is that we've got an entire generation who are going to have issues with their mistakes uh, Mm. being permanently and publicly online forever and um, so I think carving out those educational spaces those classrooms where you can have kind of open discussion off the record to talk about those things um, and uh, you know I do get students who who say some quite shocking um, things that you know in those classrooms but I'm an educator I'm not there to judge them I'm there to inform them so that's what I try and do. Yeah absolutely and I think that um as you say, it can be really useful, lots of things being online, but at the same time, we tend to assume that people, and particularly young people, are, um, are always kind of online, and, but there's many, many people who um, aren't, and so if the more we focus on that, then it's, it, it creates or exacerbates those kinds of divides. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. I really think, um, I really think uh, digital divides is something that, that needs a lot of work as well, because... Mm. Um, you know, we don't all have access to the same technology. We don't all have the ability to use technology uh, in the same way as well. So um, I think, as we said earlier, it's not just about the tech. It's not just about giving young people a smartphone saying, mm. right, now you're empowered. Um, it's about teaching them about, um, you know, political literacy and social literacy and emotional literacy and all those other things as well so that they can uh, be informed of, like I say, how to best use it as well as just kind of having it as a tool um you know and 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 using it in a way that isn't always to your advantage so yeah that's great thanks so much for talking to me it's been absolutely fascinating thank you thanks it's been great talking to you Uh, thank you and um um, perhaps we can catch up uh, in a little while when you've um done some more research and uh, and and moved on further absolutely got to start writing it all up now that's the tough thing (laughs) great see you later thanks So that was my chat with Holly and um, if you want to hear more about or read more about Holly's work you can go to the blog post uh, um, about this episode on my uh, blog uh, which is thisisnotasociology.blog and you can also follow her on Twitter she's at Holly underscore PJ and also at Online Media Law Um, and you'll be able to find some more about what she's doing there. Um, next week, I'm talking to the well-renowned um, sociologist of digital health, risk and other issues, Deborah Lupton. So be sure to uh, download that episode. The theme music is Welcome to Video Game Island by Mole. And the incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78. And they're both used on a Creative Commons license. See you next time.